Hello and welcome to the first of a two-part podcast series sponsored by Carpenters, in which we will reflect on the first official injury claim data published in October 2021, covering the period the 31st of May to the 31st of August. For the first episode, myself and my guests will be reflecting on the here and the now. And speaking of my guests, I'm delighted to welcome Marty Milliner, the LV Claims Director, and Donna Scully, Carpenters Group Director. Welcome both. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Donna. Hi. Hi, nice to see you. So I'll come to you, first of all, Martin. Um, the data show that 45,718 claims have been reported on the portal so far, of which 4,331 came from up unrepresented claimants. In your view, is this higher, lower, as expected? Yeah, that's a good question. I think initially, perhaps the Ministry of Justice had a view that maybe something up to 30% of the total could be uh, from unrepresented litigants in person. Um, I don't think, to be honest, we or many of the industry would have thought that there was a reasonable sort of uh, uh, landmark to, to aim at. Um, so yeah, this this sort of number is probably in the ballpark of what we we're anticipating. Uh, bearing in mind, of course, that a number of those uh, unrepresented claimants are what we would have called direct claimants, where insurers have sort of intervened and uh, uh, and picked up dealing with uh, instant third parties themselves. So that's probably in line with um, pre-reform sort of percentages, quite honestly. Donna. Yeah, I mean, I with it being looking like ten percent on the numbers, that to me is higher than I expected. Um, the impact assessment from the MOJ said 30%, and I never really anticipated that it would be 30%, because I think these claims are harder to run than they than they appear. And even the portal is, is fairly difficult, and it's a 64-page guide, isn't it? So I wasn't very optimistic, And but I think Martin's right. I think when you look at the 10%, you have to break that down. Um, we're definitely seeing more third-party capture or assistance um, in the new portal. I think that's probably partly because the insurers are, are, are were prepared and ready for, for it, I think as well. There's some technical issues on the A to A, so there's a, some big firms still manually loading, which takes time and causes delay, which is kind of very helpful for third party capture. It gives them that extra time to, to, to do it. So I think if I look at that 10% and I think if I take out third party capture and possibly any CMC representation there that we can't see because the portal doesn't show you if there's a CMC behind a lip, I think it's probably around 3% myself. So that's probably what I expected. So I, I would kind of break it down. I, I can't be definite, say it's 3%, but that's just my gut feeling. So can I ask then, Donna, I, I mean, of the total claims made, uh, it's 2,877 claims concluded a request for an uplift for exceptional injury, 2,332 claims requested an uplift for exceptional circumstances, and 6,453 claims requested an uplift in both categories. Now, this is reportedly higher than many insurers expected. Do you have any early thoughts on why this is happening? I have got some thoughts about it. Um, it does look high on the face of it. And you think your, your initial reaction would be, you know, is there some gaming going on? Is there, um, a, you know, kind of a, 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 an effort here to try and make up the money that's lost in other areas and say whiplash with the, with the tariff? But I have to also think about the question set because the question set in the new portal is very specific. And I think it's very specific because there's a statutory valuation of whiplash. So it has to, it asks you very specific questions. So we're finding that, you know, we have to ask the client these questions. They answer them. We just put down what the client says. And unfortunately, clients think their case is exceptional a lot of the time. 
um, and they think that their injury is exceptional and they think that they have got psychological problems because they feel a bit at that. I mean, we get the client, the, the, the accident very quickly after the accident, um, the claim. So, you know, they're kind of shaken up still and they think, yes, I, I'm scared to drive. So I'm looking at it and going in the first three months, I wouldn't really be able to assess whether all of that will come through the medical evidence. And I think that's going to be the filter. I think initially we had a, we were the filter in the old portal where would we would, you know, the client, we thought the client was exaggerating or making their own assessment of their claim. We would break it down and, 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 and kind of, you know, we, we'd be the gateway. But I think now the gateway is going to be the medical evidence. So I would say don't judge us on this data now. Judge us at the end after the medical and say how and it'd be really interesting for me to see what the percentage starts off at and what it is post-medical especially for carpenters so say we have 10 percent or 20 percent and we end up with five i say then the medical's doing the, the right job there where they're deciding what's exceptional they're deciding what's psych not the client so i, I I'm, I'm not looking at this and going oh my god there's gaming i'm looking at and thinking it's a new system with new questions and let's wait and see martin yes i mean i'd, I'd be Broadly in line with uh, Donna's views on that. Uh, in fact, what we are seeing is that actually proportionately the majority of unrepresented claimants are actually saying uh, exceptional circumstances or exceptional injuries. So um, <clears throat> I think that tells you exactly what Donna was saying that um, when it's kind of client led, I suppose, um, some law firms are perhaps overly representing the client's views initially when completing um, the CNF. So, um, and that's in line with our experience on unrepresented claimants, what they deem as, un, uh, as exceptional as, uh, as Don was saying in the day or, or so after an incident is, is possibly not that that's going to be then ultimately reported in a medical report. And uh, we've seen that track all the way through. So on the relatively limited, albeit in this data set, uh, numbers of uh, claims that have settled, obviously, since then we've gone through uh, uh, another couple of months and uh, we are seeing that track back down to what we broadly would have thought of uh, an acceptable uh, level of exceptional uh, uh, injuries or, or circumstances. Um, I think it's fair to say there are anomalies. Um, what I think is good about the, the, the OIC process is that you do have more data, there is more information that's been recorded and that's enabling us to, to understand the behaviours that perhaps are, are demonstrated by certain lawyers or certain law firms or certain um, medical experts. So that, that transparency of exceptional, you know, that, that's easy to track. So uh, I think you know, that word to the wise on that one that, you know, if, if there are anomalies, you know, they can be easily spotted by the way that the data is recorded and presented. And Martin, you already said there that you know you've obviously seen a, a few more months after this data came out. But as of the kind of well, the end of September, the data from the OAC portal showed that only 436 claims had settled. Did this figure surprise you? And what does it tell us about success or otherwise the portal's kind of first three months? Yeah, I, I think to a certain extent it echoes what Donna was saying earlier. Essentially, the difficulties on the application to application type process. Um, some of the issues around getting medical evidence through the COVID process, um, getting the schedules of special damages all lined up uh, and, and the kind of governance 
that you have to follow to take a claim through um, uh, each step of the way has has slowed down the initial sort of pipeline of cases. Um, we have seen an, a lot more cases settle subsequent to, to that data set uh, in September and certainly we are seeing um, you know, a good good number of cases now settle, settling and compromising. Um, what I think has been a positive for insurers as well, harking back to the um, unrepresented claimants is that insurers do seem to be acting very responsibly. We do seem to be settling uh, and managing a lot of the, the claimants through that process and settling their claims fairly and obviously using medical reports uh, on all of those claims now as opposed perhaps in the past there would have been um, more activities around uh, pre-medical offers that we, we perhaps would have uh, put out there. Donna. Yeah, I mean, it was very low. It was a very low figure for three months if you look at the old portal and the new portal. So, but not 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 a surprise really, because as Martin says, there were some, you know, and there still are some sort of big technical issues um, which force people onto manual loading um, and using the web browser, which is slower and, and, and not really what you anticipate as a big volume provider. You know, you need to be doing your A to A and you need to have your automation in place. So if you can imagine all that automation that we had prior to this portal and all the work that we've done over the last 25 years and so it's like starting from scratch again um because this portal is less flexible a lot less flexible than the other one was um it's much harder to do workarounds on an internal basis so you know but on a positive note we're working very closely with the mib to try and make it work better um we have lots of meetings and we have a monthly meeting with the mib exec so you know, I'm not complaining because it's really good. I mean, basically what we're doing is live testing live. So, <laughs> which is, you know, not ideal and, and, and it's very tricky and very time consuming and costly. But, you know, we have to do it and we have to make A to A work for representation and access to justice and for, you know, LEI clients and stuff. You know, if you're doing volume, you can't be manually loading. It's not going to, it's not, it's not viable either time wise or financially in the longer term. But one of the interesting um, stats here was, and Martin did touch on it, is that 96% of that figure were lips who settled in the first three months. So Martin seen the positive of that, that, you know, obviously insurers are getting on very well with lips. And but I mean, I suppose if, if I'm saying sort of maybe seven or eight percent of that was third party capture, you'd expect that to be quick settlements because there's no liability issue. It's basically here's the money once we know what it's worth. So I'd expect that to be very quick in that space. Um, it'd be interesting to see, won't it, going forward, if we stay at that kind of figure, especially as people are using the court portal better on the um, representation side. Um, but yeah, that was a, a re that was a real standout figure for me, a real anomaly. I was like, ninety six percent were lips and only four percent were represented. So, you know, but we'll see. I mean, I think it's very hard to judge that first three months because it, it was such a weird time. It took so long to get the SCNFs up and running and. You know, the, you know, there were some big issues, so we'll see. But yeah, it's, it's, I think it's really interesting. I think Martin's right as well. The data is really good. It's very good. It's very forensic. Um, I think we have to be careful not to judge too quickly, as I said, about the, the, the data set and the questions and not say everybody's gaming. But I think there will be a point where we go. The medicals have come through and they're still exceptional in that area from that particular company. So I think it's going to be very transparent. I think there's nowhere to hide. I think if you're up to bad behaviour, it's going to be very exposed. And I'm really in favour of that, I think, in terms of anti-fraud, gaming, you know, having people who are trying to 
just make money out of people and not look to represent them properly, then that would be a good thing for me. And I think we must use it. So I think, you know, the, we must police it and then we must act on it and make sure that we kind of give people warnings and say, you know, this this won't be tolerated. So it'll be really interesting to see that coming through too. So Martin, I mean, Donna there mentioned an anomaly which surprised her. In terms of the early data, what has surprised you or alternatively supported your own predictions as the direction of travel or potential travel for the uh, OAC? Yeah, I mean, I think just looking at the, the rollout overall, yes, it was delayed a fair while, um, more around the rules than the kind of complexity of the builds. But I think as, um, you know, public or government initiated technology or IT solutions go, and let's face it, there's a very, very long list of failure or disaster. Um, this was a relative success, I think, on, on all grounds, I think, uh, in relative terms, I think we should congratulate the MIB and also the, the cross-section, the cross-bench cross claimant defendant uh, players that have been involved in, in making this happen uh, in a very collaborative way. So uh, as much as it, it is a, a delay and there are teething problems, I think it's fair to say that um, it's been a, a success. Um, I think for me personally, a pleasant surprise and one I know Don and I both shared this fear that uh, either this the OIC process, the SNCFs, will be dominated or, or hijacked basically by claims management companies uh, in particular. And I think out of the data set we've seen out of the, the first uh, nearly 50,000 claims, only 101 of those were actually initiated by claims management companies, which I think is a really positive um, step forward. The vast majority of claims are coming through either supported by legal expense uh, before the event or after the event covers or supported via uh, ABSs out there that that uh, are acting in a very responsible way. I think as touched upon therefore by Donna earlier, we are seeing a, a far lower uh, incidence of spurious or fraudulent claims, which I think can't, can't be a bad thing. I know that wasn't necessarily the number one um, objective of, of the reforms, uh, far from it, but um, I think we always felt that this would be the sort of um, maybe a sledgehammer to crack a nut, some would have said, but in reality it, it, it has been the panacea that we'd hoped for in terms of uh, com combating what has been you know, a, an out-of-control compensation culture that we've been wrestling with for years. Um, so yeah, it really has dialed down uh, the amount of fraud we're seeing, the amount of uh, staged or, or contrived accident uh, to an all-time low. So uh, a real pleasant surprise, uh, um, you know, almost six months into the, the process. So I think we can, I wouldn't say uh, crow too soon on this one because you never know, there may be a sting in the tail, but um, so far so good would be my, my synopsis. Donna. Um, I, I mean, you know, I wanted to see live testing. Of course I did. And, and we did work really closely with the MOJ and the MIB to get this up and running, to make it work and to make sure it was fit for purpose. So I will always regret that we didn't do the live testing. I think, you know, something this big that impacts so much of the market and so many customers, it just wasn't really the right thing to do. But, you know, we ran out of time. Um, I understood it kept going back and that's frustrating, but I still would, wouldn't have rushed it in the middle of COVID, in the middle of working from home. You know, it, with all that was going on, I, no matter what the polit political imperative is, I would have put it back if it was me and I would have done live testing. But, you know, I, 
learning the lessons from Medco and it taking us the best part of four years to fix it after we rushed it in and with, because it was a political imperative, I'd been there and wore the T-shirt. I didn't really want to do it again. Um, you know, my IT department are working flat out on this every day. We have a morning meeting every day. It's not ideal way to run a business, but, you know, saying that, I agree with um, Martin, you know, people have done the best they can in the circumstances, you know, if the political landscape said you've got to do it, you've got to do it. So I, well, I'm not surprised by the problems, um, frustrated, but not surprised. But I have to say all credit to the MIB. I agree with Martin. You know, they are working with us really closely and have done from day one and they're doing what they can. But, you know, at the end of the day, they, they haven't got unlimited resource. And, you know, the problem is if you get a change, it, it, it then undoes other changes that you've already done. So and you don't know that. So you have to find out by, you know, someone realizes that the dates have all changed on a file and then you've got to check all the dates. So all of that's quite frustrating. Um, litigation is delayed because of that. You know, um, settlements were delayed. I think overall, from our point of view, Carpenters, the customers are still fine. You know, we're still getting on with stuff. We're still able to get on and get medicals instructed and et cetera, et cetera. So that's the main thing, isn't it? So to keep customers, you know, uh, supported and to make sure they understand it. There wasn't a lot of knowledge and there was no public awareness campaign. So it's had to be us on the ground who are having to explain it to them and explain what's going on. But all in all, I think they're OK and they're working with us and we're trying to support them and, 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 and not use it as an excuse for giving bad service. You know, we have to get on with this. We have to give a good service still. So trying to do that. Um, I think, you know, there is an issue already around mixed injuries. Um, so we have the tariff uh, whiplash and we have the non uh, tariff damages. Um, I think we, Martin and I talked about this and we've been involved in another group where it was anticipated it would be a problem and it is because it's new. We've never had statutory and, and tariff damages alongside each other and, you know, different insurers have a different view on that at the moment. Some are kind of trying to get them settled, trying to be quite generous. Others are saying we're not going to be generous and we're going to dig our heels in here because we don't know where it should be. So I think you know, we've heard that we're going to bring some cases, hopefully to the Court of Appeal, to get some of those issues ironed out around what is, you know, is the lead injury? What else, what do you get when you have more than one injury and you have a tariff and a, and a, and a, and a, a, a statutory injury and a non-statutory injury? So that's another issue that we knew was coming. We've seen it. Um, I have a different view a bit on fraud to Martin because I, d I don't think there's enough fraud fields in there and enough fraud checks, and I and, and there could have been. It's it's a really new system. It's very slick. It's been, you know, a lot of money's been spent on it, and I just think it could have had more fraud checks in, and I think I read some feedback from, from, from a few other insurers who are just seeing a bit of fraud, fraud creeping in now, and I'm not really surprised. It's a frictionless process, which kind of is a hotbed for fraud, if you like, because, you know, the more automated you get, it's very good, it's very efficient and very commercial. But it, it also lends itself to fraud and to, and to what fraudsters want to do. So I would have liked to see that. I think we must must watch that really closely. And I think if we are finding that fraud is, you know, flourishing on the new portal, then we need to maybe put some fraud checks in more or, or look at that system. I think we just can't ignore that because, you know, there's more fraud generally around in COVID now. So, you know, we don't want it to be really um, finding its way into here and, and, and having a great time. So I'd like to see that as well. Um, so yeah, I mean that that's really it for me. It's you know seeing that happening, and 
I think what one of the great things is, and you do see it with us, is collaboration. I think the industry is working well together. We're talking to the insurers all the time and finding out their experience, if we can do things together. One of my uh, bugbears a bit with this new system, because it's so regimental, is it doesn't lend itself to collaboration as good as the other one did. So when we want to kind of agree a change or something that work, might work, be more efficient day to day, we're not able to do that. The system doesn't allow it. So I, I miss that in a way. But I suppose as it goes on, Jonathan will find a new way to collaborate or a way to get around that. Um, but yeah, overall, I think it's, um, you know, it's, it's more, it's kind of what I expected, really. <laughs> OK, well, I'd just like to say a big thank you to, to Donna and Martin for giving up their time. I'd like to thank Carpenter's Group for sponsoring this podcast. And to remind you to keep your eyes peeled and your ears open for the second episode dropping sometime soon, where we will be discussing the future of the OIC portal. Until then, cheerio.